This is what, today is the 10th? 12th. There's about two weeks left. of this formal retreat, which of course I hope by now you see is not just a conventional sign, isn't it? Formal retreat. <coughs> and again, to, to emphasize the, the necessity of of remaining within the limits of the sila restraint. That's your, that's your boundary to really determine wholeheartedly to, to remain within that limitation. Mm. Now, if we don't have limits, if we don't adopt limits for our behavior, then, of course, we just tend to follow impulses. And the impulses will uh, and get us into all kinds of trouble, this impulsive behavior. So, so we really need to resolve, make firm resolution to stay within the boundaries set within the monastic forms, either the eight precepts or the ten or the 227. Even to the point of just determining to stand and run, die rather than break the precepts. A total wholehearted commitment through, through war, strife, End of the world, anything, we can still keep the eight precepts, ten precepts, two hundred forty seven. Kind of real determination. As half hearted efforts, of course, end up with half hearted results. And depressing, self disparagement, self contempt, and a wor and a world that is built and created out of that those attitudes. Years ago, when I was a layman, I used to wonder what, why I hated myself so much. And he said a lot of self-contempt and uh, disparagement. And then I thought it was became apparent that that I was wasn't really living in a way that I respected. That I was living a rather foolish and not very skillful life and that I didn't respect the way I was living, so I could hardly respect myself. I remember one, one afternoon looking out of the kitchen window at a dog in the, in the back garden and thinking, I'm worse than that dog. It was such a, 
such a feeling of anguish and uh, lack of self-respect that I even envied the dog. But even the dog was better than I. Oh, yeah. Then living within the, the, within the monastic life wasn't all that easy because uh, having lived a f- not terribly skillfully as a lay person and going into monastic life, there's all the, all the uh, habit formations from 30 years <laughs> pursuing me all the time, but the determination to live within the boundaries and so that gradually a sense of self-respect developed. I began to respect myself because I respected what I was doing, the way I was living, my intentions, my effort, what I put into my life. <clears throat> the fact that monasticism for me is a, wasn't ever a half-hearted attempt. Right from the beginning, I've rather dived right in and, and tried to, to, to understand it and give as much as I could to it, even though in certain periods were pretty dry and dreary. I went through kind of dreary plateaus where, where the uh, one just kind of got by, got through it, but always within the, within the restraint or at least trying and fully intending to, to be within the limitation and restraint of the discipline. Now we can talk about Paticca Samupada and and uh, become and and still, not, and not keep the precepts, can't we? So that not Paticca Samupada can be uh, pretty interesting, and meditation can be. We can even uh, be quite diligent about meditation, but neglect the precepts. The precepts are the very foundation for all of this. Without that, then the rest really is an empty. Is, is empty without much. As human beings, we really, we, we need to rise up to, to uh, say, uh, our standard of, of morality and virtue. When we don't respect ourselves, then we sink down into just into doing things the easy way, into just getting by in criminality and in just in, in ways that, that cause division and upset ourselves, cause suspicion, mistrust. And the society, of course, now is ridden with that kind of, um, pro- with those kind of problems, aren't they? British society now, as well as any Western country, is riddled with all kinds of drug addictions and alcoholism and and just uh, corruption and dishonesty, thievery, murder, 
rape, all these kind of things are quite, are, are not uncommon anymore because people are not willing to, to say, keep a level of moral integrity. And if we don't, then of course we, we begin to sink down into depression, despair, self-hatred, blaming others, and the, the hell realms, the abayapum, the abayapum realms, we sink into those. Those are the, those are the lower levels, lower, lower realms. It's called the abayapum, the hell realms, realm of the hungry ghosts, the animal realm, Animal realm is a higher one of the Abhayapum than the hungry ghost. The hungry ghosts are the, are the, uh, the kind of wretched creatures that they have, they're, they're pictured uh, symbolically as beings with the, with the mouth uh, which is the size of the eye of a needle and a tiny little mouth a long, long skinny neck, an enormous belly, enormous, huge belly. So uh, they're always hungry, looking for something to eat. And, they, and no matter how much they get, they can't ever fill this enormous belly. So they're hungry all the time. Just obsessed with this hunger. Not a very pretty picture, is it? Yeah, you can see that that mentality is is not uncommon in this day and age. I mean, I I don't quite see these creatures visually, but mentally, they're certainly. If you happen to go through London sometimes, you see a lot of these hungry ghosts, just beings that are just can never get enough. They're always hungry for something more, more, and no matter what no matter how much food they get, as it goes down this long skinny neck, it burns there, this long skinny throat. So even though they get something, when they swallow it, it, it burns. It burns all the way down this long skinny, incredibly long neck <laughs> into this belly, which can never be filled up. Then there's the different hell realms of, of just, uh, which some of you are very well acquainted with. <laughs> Anger and, and uh, hatred and, and just uh, endless negativity, unmitigated negativity. These, these uh, realms are states of mind, aren't they? They're, they're really about uh, our, our mind. Because we, if, you, if, you, if you look at the cosmology, the, these different realms, then you begin to un understand them if you, if you understand various 
experiences that 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 you've had from the from the deva lokas of happiness to to the human to the animal to the hungry ghost to the hell realms so the human condition is one which is can understand the when we when we share merit and spread goodwill to all sentient beings it's be we're not any any sentient beings that we can imagine, such as hungry ghosts or uh, hell spirits, are really something that we can, because we can we can we can think them, we can imagine these, and we can also recognize that we, in some times in our lives, have experienced these very wretched states. So that if you want to know what hell is. If you think, what is hell like? It's, it's, it's like that. It's miserable, painful, when you're angry and, and uh, full of hatred. When you contemplate a hungry ghost, it's a never being able to be satisfied, constantly searching for more sensual pleasures. And the more you, you get, the more hungry you become. You become just a wasted preta. Then the titanic realms of power. We, we can see that we come from a very titanic society, don't we? The titans, our, our, our political system is run by titans, isn't it? Mrs. Thatcher, certainly Titanic. She's a power-hungry being. And so the Titans, or these yakas, are just incredibly uh, obsessed with gaining power and conquering the, their enemies and, and maintaining themselves as powerful beings. They're, they're symbolically presented as a kind of green-faced uh, giants with fangs, asuras. And, they're, and in the cosmology, they're always fighting the devas because the asuras are jealous gods. They're kind of jealous. They're, they, they, they see the beautiful devas with their all their wealth and beauty and pleasure playing harps and lutes and things and dancing and and singing and they're so and they've got all the all these lovely things just because they're born in that realm and these titans are incredibly jealous of these devas and always trying to 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 destroy them and take everything they can well, i think we can understand that mentality <laughs> intelligent, power-hungry asuras. And we see these lovely devas and having a good time and we curse them. We take and we try to get everything we can from them. Kill them. Destroy their beautiful palaces and their pleasure-seeking habits. So that the, 
The devas, of course, represent the, the privileged, the refined, the, the aesthetic, the beautiful, uh, all that kind of goodness, virtue, beauty, pleasure, in all its, in its, in its good form. Then above the devas are the, are the uh, brahmas, and they're the, the radiant gods, uh, they're much more refined than the devas. They, they radiate. They're, they're full of metta and karuna and mudita, upeka. And Brahma is, is, the, is the realm of purity in the cosmology. And so it goes on. And all these are quite interesting to, to read about, these, these realms, because they're really describing the mind, states of mind. We can also, as we practice metta, karuna, mudita, peka, become ra- we, we, we radiate, we can radiate. The mind is a radiant mind. When you're down in hell, then you lose all ability to radiate anything, but just be obsessed with misery. Uh, on, and, and the Avechi hell is at the absolute pits. It's the bottom level. Avechi hell is unmitigated misery. Not even, not even a breath of relief from the continuous pain and misery. Well, the other hells have kind of, kind of moments of rest and, and it's mitigated a bit here and there. It's not total misery. But Avicii is total, unmitigated, never-ending misery. You frightened? (laughs) (laughs) People that don't keep the sealer go there. Now, virtue then is uh, we can choose as a human being we because we're not animals we're not we're not condemned to the animal kingdom of just instinctual behavior. We have the ability to to rise up to virtue, the science of the good, to do the good so that in in our life here at Amravati is is a life developing virtue, not I mean, meditation. And, but the, the actual uh, living in a community within the society is, our, is an, an increasing attempt to do the good, to do good, to develop virtue. Not as a personal badge to wear, but because it is worth doing in itself, virtuous actions and living in a virtuous way is its own reward. And it, and it brings joy and peace and harmony into the community and the society. I like to think of virtue as the science of the good. We really, we, we, we study goodness. We, we, we're not just, we're just not taking, uh, having opinions about goodness and talking about goodness and, uh, in some abstract way. We're actually 
contemplating what is goodness in, in our life here to do the good what, what do we do here what is there to do refrain from doing the bad or the evil that which is divisive or selfish or mean cruel unkind disrespectful and then to do the good so our life is is a, is a science of goodness and this is this is where many people sometimes mistake buddhism as a kind of uh, fatalistic and passive religion where you do, you don't bother to do anything but sit and and watch your breath or your navel or sit under a tree and say everything's impermanent. And so they, they have the, the activist Buddhists here in Britain, here in Western Europe and America, the engaged Buddhists or the social action fanatics or the uh, people that want to, to, uh, who want to kind of give Buddhism a, bur- a boost into, the, into action, social action or good action. But actually, that's very much a part of Buddhism. I mean, it's not discovered here by social activists in, in England, but it's very much from the whole, from the very teaching of the Buddha itself. It isn't meant to be uh, a religion of just passive indifference and uh, not caring about the community or the society we live in. So virtue is very much um, something to to really develop. That gives us the joy in the uh, in our lives. To to and without joy, then the religious life is impossible. If you have no joy, then you, to develop a spiritual life is a total impossibility. And to be joyful means you have to you have to be unselfish and giving and do things for the welfare of others because that's what joy is. It's our ability to, to make offerings and, care, and take care of others and do good for the society we're in. So this joyfulness comes from unselfish giving. There's no, there's no demand for any reward or even recognition. We're not doing good just so you say, oh, thank you, or, or uh, give you a, a, a reward for it. Because then there's no joy in that giving. If you're giving things in order to get something in return, you'll not find joy in your giving. You'll always feel kind of disappointed or ne- never quite, never, never very, it will always, something will be wrong if you're, if you want something back, something in return. So the joy of giving, of loving, of, of being able to do good things and help others and be unselfish, this is its own reward. At least I find it so. If I, uh, be having, it's, it's an honor to be able to do things for other people 
to live in the society in a way that is for the welfare of that society rather than just taking advantage of the society. And then in modern Western systems now, welfare systems, we, it te- the people tend to just think of, uh, of taking advantage of it. How many people in Britain really find joy in their lives because they're helping to, to give to the society they're in? Or how many people in this country are thinking about what they can get out of the society? All their rights and their what they can what they can manage to to get either legally or illegally. And when you have a society where you know, the British Britain is a very generous and benevolent country, so it, it tries to provide for its population. But the population sometimes doesn't seem very grateful to it, isn't it? Complains a lot, strikes and grumbling and and, uh, blaming and so forth go on all the time. So you get a very negative society here. People are very negative, complainers, grumblers. And so they don't have joy. It's not, I wouldn't describe Western European countries as joyful nations. Would you? I've never seen a... Never would it connect joy as being a quality highly developed in Western European countries or America or Australia, or New Zealand, or any of these affluent places. Now this is for contemplation, because the, 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 this joyfulness is, is something that, I mean, we can, it isn't, it isn't dependent upon uh, anything but, but our own willingness to, to be generous and kind and loving. It's not dependent upon whether you're, you, how good you are to me. Joy in my life isn't dependent on whether you like me or are kind to me, is it? I can, I can be kind to you, generous, loving to you. That's the joy. It's not, that's something that, that you have it's none of your business, is it? It's only my business. But if I'm dependent upon you being kind to me and all that, then of course, then I can, you know, my happiness is always uh, uh, being threatened because if you aren't doing what I like, behaving like I want you to, then, then I'm going to be unhappy. So a lot of people are unhappy because their families, their relatives, their friends, the, the community they live in, the society, the government isn't doing what they want. 
So we complain, don't we? The conservative government, Mrs. Thatcher, the, the neighbors make too much noise, the, the dogs too, bark too much, and the airplanes fly too low and make too much noise, and, they, and then there's the Russians, and then there's the Americans, and there's the there's Middle Eastern and the Israelis and so forth, is, and nobody's doing what, what they should be doing according to what I want. When I look at the world and, and uh, read the, the London newspapers and Time magazine and all that, you think, oh, nobody's doing what I want them to do. Very seldom. Once in a while I read something in a newspaper where I, which I approve of. and say, oh, that's very good. How wonderful. But most of it is stuff that I don't approve of at all. Terrorism I don't approve of. And war and murder and all that. Atrocity. I don't approve of any of that. And then the, these governments with all their spending, spending enormous amounts of money on armaments, weaponry, and, and warfare. It's despicable. Utterly despicable. So my happiness is always a threat, isn't it? Because uh, the world isn't behaving like I want it to. Or like it should behave. So, rather than just suffering from the way the world happens to be, with all its problems, then I can, instead of, of... of laboring in that realm of, of wanting the world to be the way I want it to be, I find that, that maybe it's not necessary. I better not wait around for the world to become like I want it. I'll just spend the rest of my life being terribly disappointed, waiting for everything to change, where everybody's virtuous, everybody's kind, the war stopped, the money's not being wasted, there's, there's uh, compassionate governments everywhere, sharing and giving and, and all this, and everything's like, just exactly like I want. I, think I, do, I really don't expect to see that, very much of that in my lifetime. I'm getting older now. But there's no point in being miserable about it either, is there? Happiness is not important. And by happiness, I mean the feeling you get, you have when you get what you want and things are going the way you like them to go. For example, you give me something I like, then I'm happy. If you do what I want you to do, then I'm happy. That's happiness. Uh, this is just for contemplation. So if to be happy, then I have to get things that I want all the time. This the capitalist system uh, really uh, exploits, doesn't it? Ad nauseum. Keeping, holding, holding up inter- nice things for you to want so you can be happy when you get them. But then what happens is you have to keep getting things because that happiness is very impermanent. Happiness is you get what you want, you're happy. 
But it doesn't last, does it? You're not happy forevermore. Then you get what you want. I say for this clock, I say I've wanted this clock, then you give me this clock, I'm happy. But I can't stay happy. So I have to want something else. And so I keep trying to get things to make myself happy. Where joy isn't dependent on that, on getting things, or the world going the way you want it, or people behaving the way they should, and, and uh, people giving me all the things I like and want. The joy is that very mature experience of, being, of giving, sharing, being, developing the, the science of the good, virtuousness is the joy of, in, in this realm, this human realm. So whether the societies, uh, or what the society is doing, or what everyone else is doing, is uh, is beyond my control. I can't go around kind of making it into what I want. But I can be kind and give and be generous and be patient and and do the good and develop virtue. That I can do. And that's worth doing. That's something I can do. It's not something that, I mean, you can't stop me from doing that, can you? It's not, well, how rotten or corrupt the society is doesn't make any difference to, to, the, to our ability to be virtuous and to do the good. And our society here is quite a, it's a very nice country, actually. I'm not British, as you well know. <laughs> and I've lived in, I've been in many countries, and I, I do appreciate this one very much. A very pleasing country to live in. And, but it could be better. <laughs> and one of the ways to make it better is for the for, for people like ourselves to not exploit it, take advantage of it, make endless demands or criticisms and grumblings, complainings, uh, disparaging it, but to live in a way for, to, to help it, to support it, to try to encourage it in the right, to do the right thing. This will bring not only joy into our lives, but also will be of benefit to, to the society, to the, to the nation we live in. Now, all of you are, I mean, I, say, I really uh, see that you, the, this community here is a very good one. And your intentions, you're, you're, you're all here for the right reasons. So all I all I want to do this evening is just encourage you and try to to encourage you to keep going and trusting in what you're doing and, and uh, really developing within the within the structures and conventions that you find here because they're they're the very uh, tools and instruments that we we use and we have to use them in order to uh, to understand 
this particular way of doing things. Like playing a musical instrument. Somebody said, uh, a kind of idealist saying, well, all religions are the same. They all teach, they all point to the same thing. They're all the same. And uh, therefore, um, it doesn't matter which religion you use. That's all very well and good. But on the practical levels, we can say, oh, you know, the, the, on the level of music, abstract music, we can say that, can't we? But uh, we have to learn how to, to play a particular instrument. You don't want to have some kind of eclectic monster, do you? Take a string off out of a piano and, and uh, string out of a violin and a key off a saxophone and tie them all together and expect to make any kind of decent music out of it. <laughs> Isn't it? You get a kind of eclectic monster. It's not that saxophones or pianos or violins and anything, uh, one is better than the other. It's a matter of preference, isn't it? Some people, we find ourselves inclined maybe to one instrument, or we find it more to our t taste than, than the others. But that doesn't mean we're condemning the rest. And so that's why when this this retreat, I emphasize the need to really develop and understand the particular, this particular instrument, the Theravada Pali Canon School, Forest Tradition, the Four Noble Truths and Paticca Samupada, and the Vinaya. Because it has its own particular quality and, and beauty to it. And of course, on the eclectic side, we we can appreciate all other religions, which doesn't mean that we we have to uh, that, that we have to kind of combine them in all together on the on the conventional plane. Eclectic religions are usually a bit farcical, aren't they? Been to remember going to a a service where they had somebody was we had a Christian hymn and then a Hindu chant and then all these different things going on and and everybody was there to be incredibly tolerant about the whole thing but it really didn't mean very much <laughs> we sat there and smiled yes isn't that And of course, the Buddhists got stuck with chanting the Karanya Metta Sutta in Pali, which is totally meaningless to everyone there. But at least there was an attempt to be tolerant, and and maybe that's all right at times, but. Uh, to to have meetings just to be tolerant and accepting and uh, of other conventions, but we also need to learn how to use the conventions we have properly and well, skillfully. 
And so that, that's what this, this is about, is learning how to use this particular instrument very skillfully, very well, so you'll understand it. And when you do that, then of course your appreciation of, of other, other conventions, other religious conventions, will increase. It won't be just an abstract, they're all the same, Every th- they're all equal and they're, they're all just as good as, you know, this kind of vague uh, idealism, but you begin to appreciate the skill that goes into a particular conventional form. Like we can we can get pulled out into, like Sister Sundra was saying this morning, there's Sargadatta and then there's Ramana Maharshi and then there's Krishnamurti and then there is uh, all these kind of super sages. Different mantras and and Sufism and and Kabbalah and on the Christian mysticism and the and the uh, Jesus prayer and the Jesus prayer with the Bodhisattva vows combined with the <laughs> Hindu mantras and dervish whirling dervish dancing. <laughs> Would you like to do that, sister? Christian dancing. <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't mean to disparage or deny the the beauty and the wisdom in the, in the other in those teachers or forms, but and and it's not to to deny those to you, but for you to really learn how to use this one. Because I remember one time when when those uh, monks from the city of ten thousand Buddhas came to Chitters and people were busily learning the the Mahakaruna chant in Chinese. They already had it in Pali. (laughs) (laughs) But it's some new kind of thing, learn it in Chinese. So, (laughs) I was quite uh, upset, really. Why do they do things like that? There's something new and different, because they're inspired by these, these, this Chinese form. And so we tend to, to drift outside and look for things, uh, uh, just to, oftentimes just to distract ourselves, something new, something inspiring, something to, that we, we can become inter- fa- fascinated with for a while till we get bored with it and forget it. Mm. But the the uh, the life, the, the, the say that the monastic life and the practice, you see, as you as you go into it more uh, profoundly and seriously and develop it, then one begins to really appreciate the convention that one has ordained it.
it has its advantages and disadvantages, like every other convention. I'm not saying this is the, I wouldn't even say this is the best one or whatever. I wouldn't make such a, such a statement that this is the best. But it is a good one, and, and it's something worthy to, to really investigate and learn. And, and if you if you really want, if you especially if you're committed member of the sangha, to really to understand it as as well as you can and develop great skill with it, because then you can also pass that knowledge on to others, as you are called upon to teach and and. Um, in your life within this convention. <coughs> but still, I enjoy reading Nithagadatta and Krishnamurti and all that. It's not that I don't have anything to do with it. I quite enjoy them myself. But, uh, and appreciate, uh, I like to go to the city of 10,000 Buddhas and, and I enjoy doing their pujas in Chinese. And sending uh, metta throughout the universe in Chinese. <laughs> I like to do that too. It's not that I'm against it. But what I'm trying to say is not just seek distractions with it, uh, because you get bored or, or fed up or disinterested or disillusioned with the particular convention you're in really up to you to, to try to look at and study it and, and develop it <coughs> and be true to it so that you, you, you know what you're talking about. You're not misrepresenting it. <coughs> I've, I used to feel frustrated sometimes with the Theravada because <coughs> it, it lacked a kind of altruism that I incline to. You see, I have a moon in Aquarius. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> but that implies, what I'm saying is, moon in Aquarius to me means that I tend towards a kind of altruistic, I have strong altruistic tendencies. So, uh, some of the Mahayana altruism I find very, I've always found very attractive. Kind of high-mindedness of it all. And uh, the, in, in the Theravada and so forth, sometimes this, this isn't as, as, as high as in the Mahayana. It isn't, isn't so altruistic a form. So that the, the kind of frustration of longing for this, the, the highs of this altruism, and and then the doubts that form about the kind of limitations of the particular Theravada convention. But in the long run, I found that the what the the, the advantage of Theravada very much is that it it really takes you to the very source, so like we. We've been investigating with the Paticca Samupada to suffering and the end of suffering. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't kind of go off into 
paeans of praise and, and adulation and, and uh, high-mindedness, in, to the degree it does that, actually, but, but its main, main uh, emphasis is on recognizing suffering and the end of suffering. And sometimes if we're just caught in, in the inspiration of high-minded views, altruism, uh, we never get down to where, what the real problem is. And that people talk about loving all sentient beings before they ever come to terms with themselves. Or trying to save the world from destruction rather than, than trying to uh, save themselves from destruction. Altruism has, uh, has its place and its purpose, but it is not an end in itself, and it leaves us only with, with, with high-minded ideas that can easily turn sour. And some of the greatest cynics I've met have been, have, were once the very high-minded alt- altruists. Because that is, is very uncertain, unstable. Where this, when, when you're getting to, to, to the heart of our human experience, the human experience of suffering, anxiety and fear and desire that, that haunt the, the human condition, and the, the ignorance of not understanding things clearly, and all the, the problems that that brings into our lives, we see an affluent society like this. Don't we? we see people, very privileged, well-off people, full of, uh, caught in the Avechi hell, unmitigated, relentless misery. Because, why? Because they, they, they're still, they're still getting upset by the way the world happens to be, that everybody's not what they should be, that, the, that there's problems in the society, that, that life isn't just what we want, even though we have everything. And that we can we say in, here in Britain, we can, people, many people have everything necessary, high standards of luxury, beautiful homes, privileges, social privileges, and all the best, and still live in a state of anguish and despair because the world isn't what we, we want it to be and people don't do what, they, what we like and, and things aren't the way that we want them to be so we can just feel terribly negative and critical and anguished and fed up with everything. And that's uh, that's one of the the problems of having of being well off without wisdom and, and being in democratic benevolent societies affluent societies and still be totally miserable in them.
because human misery isn't isn't the, just the, the the prerogative of the poor and the third world or the tyrannical countries run by tyrants, is it? it we find in, the, in countries like this a lot of human misery among the privileged. And this misery is is from this ignorance, isn't it? From avicca, bhajaya sankara, sankara bhajaya vinyamang, and on through that sequence. Sokaparitewa tukatomanasa upayasa. If you start off with avicca, you end up with sokaparitewa tukatomanasa upayasa every time. I guarantee it. Now to to do good. Is to you is takes takes vija or knowledge also. It's not just being goody good, and trying to be nice and and kind of superficially good. But the science of the good takes wisdom, study. Not just not just a a a mask, a facade of a pretty facade of goodness that that I'm talking about, but a profound goodness to the very heart of things. Not just cosmetic goodness. It's not goody-good, the kind of superficial niceness, but the virtue is something very deep and profound and penetrating. It takes wisdom, wisdom to be really virtuous. Sensitivity receptivity, intelligence, to be virtuous, to be truly virtuous. So I offer this for your reflection.